Welcome to an all-new episode of Outside the Tank. I'm Tom Healy. Let's go. We're with Ian from Validated, okay? And this was Season 8, Episode 21, November 14th of 2017. Uh, Ian comes in asking $250,000 for 8% of the company. Now, this is pretty early on in the company. They had been in business for a year. And what Validated did when they went into the show was they offered free parking and free rides for people that were buying stuff at a store at the mall. So it was kind of a reward for someone. Come into Macy's, buy a bunch of stuff, and we'll validate your parking. Makes sense, um, but certainly a lot of moving pieces here. You have merchants, you have parking garages, you have technology, um, and, and this really was basically a you know car um, validating uh, on an app. Uh, when they came into Shark Tank, they had 50 merchants um, that were bought into the app. Uh, ultimately, no deal. Sharks were not a fan, uh, but we're going to check in with Ian to hear what happened after the show, what's happened since. So uh, I think you'll really enjoy this interview. A lot of great lessons in it, and we'll see you afterwards for our Chalk Talk. Enjoy. All right. Welcome to the show, Ian. Uh, really excited to talk to you. I know there's a lot for us to cover. Uh, you went on Shark Tank in 2017. The company was validated. Um Walk us through your journey as an entrepreneur, even prior to this company. Uh, what did you had uh, done prior to it? Uh, and then lead us up to meeting your uh, co-founders and getting this thing going. Sure. So um, I actually went to film school. I got out of high school and thought I was going to be Quentin Tarantino. And I went to, to uh, the most, ex I think at the time it was the most expensive film school in the entire country. It was Tisch School of the Arts at, at New York University. And um, I got about two years through that program. And one night I woke up in a cold sweat and I realized that I was going to graduate from college with like a quarter million dollars in debt and a fine arts degree. And it just was, it was like a, it was like a total mind shift. Um, and so I ended up transferring back to Montana state because I grew up, I was from Montana and I was uh, in a house living in this total stereotypical like college flop house with like five other guys. They were all computer science guys. And I was like the one arts guy. And uh, all we did was have parties and like tinker with stuff. And that was pretty much like our life. Like, I, don't, I think I went to class like three times. It was <laughs> it was pretty bad. Um, we were just having a ball and, uh, everybody, you know, I was really, I'd always been into technology, but I was not, I knew better than to try to be an engineer. It just was not, I don't, my, my, I don't have the, the mental agility for that, but I was really into electronic music and making music and, 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 uh, putting on, I used to put on raves and had a radio show and all this stuff. Um, and I started asking my, my best friend from high school, one of the guys I live with. Who is this, you know, he's a brilliant engineer. And I was like, hey, can you make me this? Can you make me that? I want to be able to mix music this way. Or, you know, I wanted him to basically make me a bunch of free software because I couldn't afford the, the real stuff. And um, lo and behold, we discovered MP3s and uh, amassed this massive, like gigantic library of music, which we played at our house parties. And uh, we thought, boy, it'd be cool if there was a way to play these files back you know, in a cooler way that was like, you know, more interactive and like more personal and more kind of like fun in the way music was. Cause at that time, this is like the mid nineties. Now this is a long, long time ago. Um, I, I think people think I'm younger than I really am. Uh, it was, you know, we were using like a command line to play back these files. So we ended up building this piece of software called vibe and, um, we put it out on our college, like the college, like uh, web server, and this time, like bandwidth was pretty, was kind of like a limited commodity. And it was out there for, I don't know, like a week. And the dean of the university called us up, somehow tracked us down. He was like, I don't know what you guys put out there on our server, but it's it's using 100% of the university's bandwidth. You got to get it down out of there. And it was just so many people downloading uh, this, this really kind of crappy software that we made. But it had one thing going for it, and that it had this really wacky user interface that was really cool. And it did like visualizations to the music and stuff. And no one had ever seen anything like this. Um, and then like a week after that, this company dropped out of the sky from Silicon Valley and said, hey, we really like this vibe player that you made. Can we buy it? And we were like, what? Um, 
So we said, sure. And we sold them to this thing that we sold them vibe for like $25,000, which is, you know, nothing. But at the time it seemed like, holy cow, we are rich. Successful exit. Yeah. We had a successful exit. And like, we two guys live in Montana. Like we knew nothing about startups or anything else. We just knew that there was like the internet and there was this sort of shareware scene online. We didn't really, it never really occurred to us that you could like make a lot of money. So 25 K was like, holy cow. Just think of all like the disco lights we can buy for our raves. You know, I mean, it was pretty, pretty small thinking, um, but it was a successful enough thing. We thought, you know, let's build that again, but let's do it better. Let's make a better product. And so we ended up uh, dropping out of school and focusing 100% of our time building this thing that was we ended up calling Sonique. And uh, over the course of like 1997 to 2000, uh, we amassed 55 million active users and we sold the company to Lycos. Uh, and this is my buddy, Andrew McCann and I, not, uh, not, uh, Tove, um, predates him, but I knew Tove at that time. He was Andrew's cousin who showed up at our house parties from time to time and was like a good, you know, like a friend, um, but, but not involved directly in that. So we sold that company and it was kind of a big deal. I mean, I think it was like a $90 million deal. I wish I could say that, that all that money came right into my pocket, but we had investors and we were also young and dumb and got a little played, I think, but, um, uh, but you know, we did well. It was it was very exciting, and and uh, you know, I think our software there was Winamp. Everybody in Winamp, it was like the number one music software. Sonic was like the number two. Um, so uh, you know, it was a big success. We all we felt like rock stars, and and so we moved to San Francisco. We were living in Bozeman, Montana, when we did this, and like our office was like a little coffee shop. It used to be a coffee shop called Liquid Three Sixty that for some reason went belly up or something. So we'd like moved into this ex coffee shop and made it our office. And we had like this wacky guy that we brought in from England and this Australian, uh, and a couple others. And we're like living in Bozeman, making this thing. And then we sold it and we all had to move to San Francisco. And so we became part of Lycos, which was the company that bought us. Um, huge mistake. <laughs> Lycos was a total sandcastle built on sand, built on a sandbar, built on more sand. Like it was a, it was a terrible company. And it's, it was all built on ads. And as soon as the dot-com crash happened, um, you know, it just tanked. And uh, back in those days, when you got acquired, it was all stock deals. So, you know, we watched our, our portfolio, which had been in like the, you know, many multiple digits just kind of go. Um, but still did all right. You know, it was, and it was an incredible experience. But, you know, what I learned from all of that was that making products for me, it gives me the same mojo as making films had, you know, it's all to me, making a great product is all about telling a story, making people feel a certain way, kind of creating a beginning and middle and end. And that launched me in a career of startups. So I've, I've really only been involved in doing startup and entrepreneurship um, for my whole career. And uh, I never did finish school, but it uh, hasn't, hasn't really been a big deal since then. Uh, and so I've worked on a number of other other products, both in music and and uh, I don't really care what the product is. I just like making stuff and I like trying to engage users and tell stories. So I want to say Validated got its start. I think I moved to Portland, Oregon, because as I told you guys earlier, my wife, uh, who I met in film school, she still works in the in the entertainment industry. She's a uh, works on stop motion animated films in Portland, Oregon, for whatever reason is sort of the U.S. center of that weird industry. Um, so we decided to move here so she could work at Leica, uh, which is a big stop motion studio. And um, I was kind of sitting around twiddling my thumbs, wondering what I should do. And I was having a beer one day with Tove, who I've known, you know, as I said, since college. And he, Tove had kind of followed, in a way, followed our, our footsteps. We, I guess we'd inspired him to become an entrepreneur to some degree. And he'd started a valet parking company in Seattle and built it into the largest valet operation in the city. So he, you know, all the valet parking in Seattle was practically was, was Tove's company. And this was like 2011, maybe. And we were just talking about his business. And I had been living in LA for a few years, right before Portland. And, you know, I was like, man, it'd be so cool if you could just pay for parking on your phone and you could just push a button and your car would show back up and you know, why don't we do that? Let's, 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 you know, make a business around that for your, for your business. Uh, smartphones, you know, we're still kind of new enough at that time that it was still exciting. So we decided to start a company. We called it Parked. And um, 
over a year, we built like a whole product line. We built a B2C side to let you kind of pay for your parking and request your car. And we built this operation side that you could use on an operative valley stand, 100% on your phone with payment and all this stuff. Um, and uh, it worked great. And we started uh, piloting it with a bunch of pretty big parking companies around the country. And um, and we had these nightclub guys in LA that were using it at like all the hottest clubs and they loved it. And things were looking really good and we were starting to pitch to VCs and getting pretty excited about it. And then uh, I heard about this thing. I'd been hearing about it for years uh, because I know this guy named Travis Kalanick from way back. His <laughs> first company was also in the MP3 space. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we were kind of acquaintances and I think I ran into him at a mutual friend's house one time and I, I in LA and I'd heard about this thing, Uber. So I was in the back of my mind, I was kind of aware that it was a thing. And then all of a sudden one day, these nightclub guys that we had call us up and they're like, guys, we love park. Everybody loves it, but we got to tell you something. We're seeing our valet numbers drop off like 20% of, you know, month over month or I don't know, might have been week over week. I don't remember. They're like, we're seeing this huge drop in our numbers and it's, it's this thing, Uber, are you familiar with it? And I was like, Oh no. I was like, we are dead. <laughs> we're dead. We're so dead because you know, a, I'm, I, you know, I used Uber myself by that point. It already had kind of was concerned. And then also I know Travis enough to know that like that was going to be successful because he's, he's a tenacious guy. Um, if nothing else. So we, we were right in the middle of trying to raise and, you know, we couldn't, you know, we knew what was going to happen. If we went out and tried to pitch to VCs, knowing that that was going on, we were going to be totally destroyed. So we kind of pulled back, regrouped and had to really think about what was next. Um, and that was how validated was born. We, we looked at, you know, what's the, what are the things that we've learned about, parked where are the value where is the value that we can target and we can deliver to customers in a way that will be meaningful but that is you know differentiated from anything that's out there and that might be able to live harmoniously within this sort of new mobility ecosystem and parking validation was the thing we kind of grasped onto and that led us to think about okay what if you could turn parking validation into into, into any kind of validation turn, you know where any sort of transportation that you might use to get you know, I'm going to go spend money downtown, but I need to get there. If I order packages off Amazon, you know, or if I hit a spending target with a, with Nordstrom, right, I get free shipping. But why do I have to pay for parking or gas or anything else if I'm going to go downtown and shop? So that was kind of what, that was how Validator was born. It was sort of like conditional free shipping for yourself to go to the places you want to go shop and dine at. And that that was that was the, the, the kind of aha moment that we had in, in terms of how to what our next company would be. And the other thing was we decided I'd been the CEO of Parked and Tobin had been the COO. And I said, I'm done. I'll, let's switch roles. So he became the CEO of Validated. And I went and said, I'm, I'm good at doing product stuff. I want to focus on product. So that was it. That's how it started. That was a really long and involved uh, story to tell you how I got there. But No, it was, it was fascinating and appreciate you walking us through that. Sometimes we have to ask six questions to get that information. So it saves everyone time by laying out the entire journey. Um, in terms of Shark Tank, uh, did you approach them? Did they approach you? So I've been a Shark Tank fan secretly, you know, it was like a guilty pleasure for a long time. <laughs> um, no, we, so I think in like 2015 or 2016, we got into the tech stars uh, in the Seattle cohort of tech stars. And um this was sort of like, because I think validate, like we pivoted into validated. I think it was 2015. Um, yeah, so we were in Techstars and we were, we'd been going through most of the program. And then we start, I, I want to say, I think somebody, a producer from Shark Tank just reached out to us. And I guess they'd been looking for new, they were kind of doing a tech, some tech focused episodes. And so I think they knew that Techstars was a good place to look for companies that had already sort of been vetted and had something going on. So they reached out to us. Um, and, you know, I don't think my other Alex, our CTO and Toe, I don't know if they were super excited about it because I don't think they were super fans of the show like I was. But I was just like, oh, cool. <laughs> I want to go beyond Shark Tank. I mean, I knew I was I obviously knew what Shark Tank is, but 
as somebody from the, who had aspirations to be in the entertainment industry at one time and is fascinated by that stuff, I was so gung-ho to do it. Uh, I think I kind of pushed them. I was like, come on, let's go. Let's go do it. Well, it's kind of the convergence of your two passions, your two worlds, right? That's right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, the experience itself, uh, I mean, was there disappointment? Did you say, hey, I learned a lot. Cool, let's move on. I mean, what was it like going on there and not getting a deal? Well, you know, I think we were aware of many of the kind of flaws and difficulties inherent in what we were doing. And those were, so I, I don't think we definitely thought we were going to get a deal. Um, but I think that we thought that with the backing of somebody um, who had, you know, some pull, I mean, a bit, the biggest blocker for us getting into the marketplace was just awareness. And, you know, get, we, we were building, you know, I've now worked on enough marketplace type products that I know that having going after a multi-sided market is a nightmare for all kinds of reasons. Um, but, you know, the biggest, the classic blunder of trying to start a marketplace or multi-sided a product that serves a multi-sided market is you have to, you know, you either, you have to pump both sides of the market at the same time. You, you have a clap chicken and the egg, right? Your, your supply doesn't care about your marketplace. If there's no demand and your demand doesn't care about the marketplace, if there's no supply. So you have to figure out a way to pump both sides up, at the, you know, at the same time. And that's really hard. And the, you know, one way that a lot of people use to short circuit that is just awareness and PR. So, you know, we thought Shark Tank itself would be an interesting way to get PR, which I know a lot of people, that's why they want Shark Tank is for the, is for the PR. But we also thought if we could get a shark interested, having a high profile person, like let's say, you know, Mark Cuban or somebody would give us access to a way to, to get that, that awareness or generate that awareness more quickly. So that was kind of one of our hopes. Um, we didn't, I think we were interested in, in the money, but honestly, we were pretty we already closed some money by that point, and I think we felt pretty good about our chances of raising um, in the you know from VCs. So, you know, the 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 money aspect of Shark Tank is definitely appealing because it's a possibility. But I think we felt we'd heard that it comes with strings attached, and I, I think we were a little skeptical. Like it seemed too good to be true in some ways. Um, and and the deals, I mean, as I'm sure everybody knows, like. The deals that you see on Shark Tank, like the mechan the, the percentages and sort of the particulars of the deals that are on in Shark Tank are not always reflective of what actually happens in most in real life. Like they, they tend to be a little heavy on the equity and a little light on the money sometimes. Um, although I do agree that I like the fact that they play that up, you know, the need to have a real valuation that's based on something real uh, on Shark Tank. Mm. I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to have an idea and somebody's going to dump a million dollars on me. And I say, no, that's not enough. But um, yeah, we were, we were, we had high hopes and we were excited. And uh, so, oh yeah. Do you want me to go into the, the results? Yeah. Learnings? Well, yeah, go what, you know, what did you learn from that? And then how did it shape what you did moving forward? Just take us through, you know, post Shark Tank up until, um, what you know you'd shared with us happened yeah so we got on the show and boy we worked on that pitch and we worked on that pitch and we worked on that pitch so much and we really thought it was going to be we thought we knew where the weak points were and then we get out there and we were completely taken off guard by the stuff that they actually were poking us about like Chris Saka, the thing that I remember the most about that is just how absolutely opposed to our product Chris Saka was because of QR codes. He was like, I think he referred to them as like a cancer, a, some kind of cancer of, of like mobile phones. And I think he you used know, today, word, uh, I think he used the word herpes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And I just, and like in our minds, like, yeah, we'd seen QR codes obviously being used in really annoying and obnoxious ways up to that time. But as I think we can all agree now, they're actually a great way to connect physical space to phone space, right? Like you got digital space and physical space and you need them to come together and scanning a code is a pretty easy way to do that. So I don't know, maybe we were just a little ahead of the curve on that or something, but it, it worked. I mean, it wasn't, it was not one of the complaints that we'd received from users was not that they had to scan a QR code. However, um, I'm gonna say that we took that criticism very seriously 
And we actually did do away with those QR codes very rapidly after that. We came up with a much better, it forced us to really confront that as a mechanic of our user experience. And we ended up not only doing away with QR codes, we actually ended up doing away with our app entirely. And we went appless. We created a, an experience that was um, mostly started with SMS and then brought you through a web page with just like two clicks. And so the experience, you know, the prior experience with validated was you go into the shop or the restaurant and you'd basically say like, oh, hey, can I get validated? And they would, you know, you'd scan a code and then that would unlock the deal and then you'd push it out. And the experience that we ended up coming up with was you'd pre, you'd, you'd uh, associate or link a credit card to your validated account. And then when you hit a qualifying spending threshold, you just instantly get a text that said, congratulations, you earned, you know, five bucks off your next Uber or Lyft, click here. And so you tap it and it would instantly credit you. So it was a really slick experience. And the retailers loved it because pack, you, you'd basically, customers, they worked so fast, customers would get that sort of thank you often while they were still standing there next to the cash register. And they'd be like, sweet. Um, so from that point of view, it really did make us kind of confront, I think, our user experience and improve it. Um, and so I, I do have Chris Saka to thank for that, though I don't think that's exactly what he meant. <laughs> like, I think we went farther than he was talking about. And I still think that QR codes have, have their place. Well, you still see them everywhere. It's like they went away and they came back. Um, well, Post-pandemic, post uh, I don't think we were able to eat a meal at many restaurants without a QR code. That's right. I mean, they, if you we, if our QR code, if the validated QR code system was that was out there right now, no one would blink, right? No one would gotten that. And so. do you think do you think that uh, tech founders? I know everyone talks about user experience. Do do you feel that founders? understand user experience that they are good at guessing user experience do they know how to measure it i, I guess tell me that because the, the term gets thrown around a lot but then I, I feel like you still experience some of these pieces of software and you're like did, did they make some horrible assumptions or what went wrong so i'm, I'm really curious your perspective on that you know user experience is a really difficult thing to to get right and I don't think, you know, there's a big difference to me between as an entrepreneur spotting a, a business opportunity or, um, you know, some kind of, of spot place in the market where you can, you know, that you can fulfill or exploit in order to make money versus create, creating a user experience for somebody. They're not the same thing. So just because you have some great idea for uh, a product or, or a way to, you know, like a, a SaaS or something, um, it, the success or failure of that product is not going to be determined just by how clever your, your approach is. It's going to be predicated by how many users you can, you can convince to adopt the thing and, and love it, right? They have to, they have to get in there and, and be loved enough. They're going to spend money. I don't think, you know, to me, this is, this is how I have always approached it. Um, to me that I follow what I think. So I have now heard people refer to this as an older way of thinking, which I don't agree with, but I follow what I call the three amigos philosophy that on any given startup uh, project. And I, and I think this is true even of like a restaurant. I mean, I, I think it's true across the board. You need to be, there's three things to think about. There's the why, that's the business, right? The business is why are we doing this? How are we making the money? And then there's the how, right? That's engineering. That's how do we, how are we going to make, but the middle part is the most important part. It's the, what, what are we building? What value are we delivering? What problem are we solving? What is this thing? And that thing is the bridge between the why and the how, and that is a product leader's role. And as, as a product person, like that's always been my role in the company, you know, in, in from Sonic to today, I'm typically, that's where I, the role I feel is the product. Um, you know, that's what you have to do. And I think entrepreneurs who come into this and think that they can do all three of those things, oh, it's rare. You know, there are those solo solo founders out there that get it done, but it's hard. Um, and then, you know, there are there are founders, a lot of teams out there that are just a, a like a CEO and a CTO, and they don't have that product part. And, you know, not everybody has those chops. As I said at the beginning of this, you know, I think that creating a great product is all about storytelling and telling the right story to the user through the user experience. And, 
you know, if you tell, if you're not telling a story anyone cares about, they're going to tune it out. So you gotta, you gotta tell a good story. This is, I'm just spouting off to you now, the stuff that I tell, I do a lot of advising and mentorship these days. So I'm just giving you my, my spiel that I give all of my, uh, my mentors, mentees. You know, it, it, to, to me, it, it's refreshing to hear someone, um, talk about even as, you know, I, in my opinion, Ian, and just knowing you for a short period of time, you know, our, our off camera chat and our chat now, you're a very intelligent person, but also you don't act like you're the smartest guy in the room. In fact, I think you're very humble and you listened and you got beat up. You guys got the pulp beat out of you by the, the sharks, but you walked out saying, okay, what, what did they say that I need to listen to? And is it too complex? And can we change the user experience? And, you know, even with, you know, uh, Chris beating up on you and saying, hey, that user experience really horrible or bulky and, you know, the herpes comment, you were able to, you know, you don't have a tremendous ego involved when it comes to making a product work because you know how important it is for users to be able to look at it and say, yeah, this this does work and I, I want to be on this platform. So um, that's really I important and, and listening isn't easy. And, and I imagine it would be, it would have been easy for you guys to just stick to your guns and not iterate and say they're wrong and I'm not sure where the company would have gone. But I think above all, all else, that lesson needs to come through loud and clear to younger entrepreneurs that don't have the maturity and wisdom that you have. You know, I think that's the thing that I've, I've come to realize and I'm going to credit. So, you know, I, I came out of my first startup with a lot of accolades. You know, we were in all the we were in the Wired magazine and the New York Times and Spin magazine. Like we, we felt a little bit like celebrities coming out of that. And I think I had a pretty big ego back then. And, you know, one of the things I'm going to credit my co-founder Tove uh, invalidated is really helping me see, and, and also my wife, uh, actually, to a large degree as well, is really learning that, or relearning, I think, the lesson that when you're making products and you're starting a business, it's not about you, right? It's about the customers. And, and when I had, you know, if, if you're all, all caught up in what you want and like what you think needs to happen and how you want things to be and what your ideas are, you're not listening to your customers, you're not listening to your users and you're gonna fail. Um, and that that is, I, I think being humble and listening is the most important skill an entrepreneur can have because how do you know when opportunity is knocking if you're not listening? And and sometimes the opportunity is, is there where you don't see it. I mean, you have to be listening for it. And part of, I always talk about opportunity surface area, right? Like you wanna maximize your opportunity surface area because that you know is how you're going to find those those little spots where you can fit and the only way to to maximize that surface area is to be a good listener and to to do a lot of networking and be curious and to kind of be out there as much as you can with your antenna looking for whatever those opportunities are um so you know i i try to be humble I, i'm sure i fail in all the time but it, i think that that's a quality when I'm looking at mentoring somebody or advising somebody, it's definitely a quality I look for. I tend to sort of pass over people that I can see. I, I think of them as being a little uncoachable if they're just too full of themselves and too kind of focused on their own internal needs and not really out there ready to listen and, and, and learn and be curious. Why do most tech, why do most tech companies fail? Most tech companies fail because for I think mostly for the reason we just said. It becomes all about what's, you know, the internal mechanics of the company and the egos of the people involved and the dynamics between them and maybe their investors. And they lose sight of the core of what they need to be doing, which is delivering value to customers. And so so that's one reason. And, the, and you know, in a startup that matters tremendously because you're on this time, you're on a clock. I mean, right. You can, you only have so much runway and, um, you only have, you know, you need to create a profile of yourself where you're building momentum, especially if you're a venture scale company where you're building momentum that fits a curve that venture, you know, the investors are looking for. So if you've been sitting around, you know, fuddling, fiddling around for five years and not really done much, investors are going to be skeptical. So you got you got to move at a certain pace, and if you're all focused on your internal squabbles or this or that, and you're not listening, and you're not always sort of 
dodging and weaving and finding your way, you're going to fail. Um, and I, I really think there's there's these key inflection points in any startup where you're moving, you know, you're moving from the there's the first one, which is just getting a product there, getting getting an MVP out the door, coming up with an idea. Then there's that I just raised my first amount of money and now I have investors. There's that, you know, we're expanding our team. There's all these little moments where it's easy to get bogged down in the kind of minutia of what happens during those times. But it's and it's so hard to just push through and keep that momentum alive. Um, and the more you're focused inward, I think the less perspective you have and able to keep that momentum going. So you've got to always just be, you know, mindfulness, I think is really a critical component of being mindful and grateful and always sort of focused outward and, and being receptive to things that come. So, yeah, it really hurt my feelings when Chris Sokka told us that uh, he used herpes in the same sentence as our product, but I listened to him. And I, I can't say he was completely wrong. Yeah, you, it's interesting because, I mean, you're, you're almost better off having low self-esteem than high self-esteem in this world. I mean, because, you know, you're, you're constantly going to get feedback. You're constantly going to have customers and investors and whoever it might be telling you things. And if you've got so much self-confidence and such high self-esteem that, you know, you aren't able to listen to that and take that, it, it can it can crush you. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. I think you're totally right. It's there's a difference between being an egomaniac and having and having a thick skin. You know, you need to be able to take the criticism, but that doesn't taking criticism doesn't mean ignoring it. It just means not letting it, you know, crush you. You have to be able to take the criticism, internalize it, and move on. Um, but you have to be humble enough to listen. Uh, and I see a lot of entrepreneurs who just they just close their ears and they're like, no, I don't want to hear it. Or they're like, what do you know? And, you well, know, those me, people just have to make their own mistakes. And sometimes they learn and sometimes they don't. Well, let me ask you this. In your experience, how often is someone's first iteration what ends up being the home run? Never. Right? <laughs> I feel like it's probably, probably the answer is never. And if they think that it that's true, I think they're not being honest. Um yeah, I, I mean, Uber was black cars that they owned a fleet in San Francisco. They almost did the opposite to scale it. I, it's just, it's just interesting. I didn't, I didn't know. Maybe I thought maybe you'd surprise me and say ten percent or something, but I knew it wasn't high. But yeah, you just think about these, these, uh, you know, where you start and where you end up. So that means that you're going to keep being wrong and keep having to change things. And if you're so arrogant or so, you know, narrow focused that you don't make those changes, you, if you don't have a 0% chance, you have a fraction of a percent chance of having any level of success. Yeah, I think that's right. I really, I really do think that's right. And I think if you even look at really, um, you know, forceful, larger than life personalities within entrepreneurship, like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Travis or Anybody like that, even those people, they may have massive egos, but they still listen and they still learn. They're always learning and they're always they're always pivoting. They're always curious. I think that that desire to I think it's also about being data driven, that there is an objective truth that that is attainable by looking at the data and that if you're willing to, you know, being receptive to data is part of being able to listen, like, right, you're going to do what the data tells you to do. And you're, or at least you're, you're going to, it's one factor. So I think you don't, you, you don't have to be like a, a passive, you know, non-aggressive person to be successful, but you just, you have, there's a difference between having no ego and, and being just positive that every decision you make is right. Like, I don't think even Elon Musk would think that he's a, a like, probably doesn't think every decision he's ever made is right. I'm sure he could point to a million mistakes he's made. Um, but those mistakes, like we own them as entrepreneurs, you have to own your mistakes and own your failures and be fine with it. And I, and I mean, to me, that's maybe one of the differences I hear about between the startup culture in the U S and startup culture in other parts of the world. And it is maybe somewhat of an explanation as to why there's so many successful startups here is that in the U S it's okay to fail. Like, right. Like you can not get knocked down and beat up and, you can own that failure and come back from it. And, and in fact, you know, we call that grittiness. And a lot of, I think a lot of, of uh, you'd think a, a venture capitalist would be like, oh, I don't want to touch that guy. You know, he's radioactive. 
I don't think that's true. I see a lot of, I see a lot of entrepreneurs who failed multiple times, but they come back from it. And, um, it's really all about how you own that failure and how you learn from it that I think determines your, your path. Yeah. It's interesting. I forget where I read it or where I heard it, but they said, you know, you're, you'd be better off instead of getting an MBA, take that 200 grand or whatever it costs you start like two businesses and fail miserably at both. Cause <laughs> yeah. after you do, after you do that, you'll be better off than if you had, you know, sat in those classrooms and then went, okay, now I'm ready to, you know, build something, but well, you're probably going to fail at it. So it's just, I think that's solid advice in a way. I mean, you know, I'm coming from a guy that never finished college, but you know, uh, I think it is, there is something to be said for learning by doing. And at least, at least if you, you know, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with getting an MBA and there's certainly a place for that. I think at early stage, I'm not sure that be having an MBA in an early stage startup makes any difference at all. I mean, it's great once the money is there because you need someone to know how to spend it. But in the beginning, I don't think it makes a difference. I think you learn everything by doing and, and listening. Yeah. I mean, I, an MBA is wonderful if it's going to help you advance a career, but I mean, if you're have your heart set on being a gritty entrepreneur and building something and going through that whole process, then just start building and doing versus, you know, sitting and learning and, and watching. Well, yeah. I feel like I'm surrounded by high level academics right now. Cause Tom, you actually finished college Ian, you started, <laughs> but didn't finish. And then I never started college. So <laughs> take it from me, you know, spending my first four years outside of high school, selling insurance products door to door in the business community on 100% commission. After those four years, I, f I feel like I earned a four year degree and I was pretty uh, rough, tough and hard to bluff after that. So I, I think I want to make a comment and get your impression on it, Ian. I, I think that being confident and having, you know, a knowledge of where your strengths are uh, and an ego to some extent is important for an entrepreneur. But another way of saying it, and this is something that I, I've said a lot over the years, is you've got to be very, very careful, even if you're confident in your own strengths, in your core strengths, you still can't fall in love with every single idea that you have about your product and service. Is that is that a fair way to assess the balance there? I Absolutely. Um, and I, I mean, I've been guilty of this time and again, you know, I'll come up with some idea I think is like the coolest idea ever. I'd be like, oh, this is so great. Aren't I so smart? Uh -huh. um, and it's terrible. It's it's a it's a total trap. Um, you really need to get those ideas. Having having ideas that are clever are great, but you have to be willing to to know like get them out there, try them out. You know, like my response to anybody who thinks that's a good idea is great. Build the lowest effort, highest value MVP of that idea you can. Get it out there, test it, and see how it flies. And if it if it works, you know, judge its merits based on on how the market, you know, market forces, not just on your own intuition uh, when you can, but you do have to start somewhere. So, you know, hopefully your ideas and you have to have confidence and be able to sell and you can't sell something you don't believe in. So it, I think it's completely fine for an entrepreneur to be in love with their own ideas to start with. They have to have a passion for it and be excited to get it out there. But you have to be willing to, to compromise if your idea turns out not to be quite the right thing. And that's where we where we're dodging and weaving and pivoting is is, you know, being willing to compromise when needed or whatever. So but, you, you know, I think it's I do think it's important to start with something that you're in love with because you're going to be stuck with that thing for a while. So you better like it. Yeah. And the uh, I guess the uh, the M in MVP um, is really critical, you know, don't, don't blow your, your wad of cash in your runway on something fanciful, build a, a minimum, uh, viable product that you could test, get it out there and don't be afraid to iterate very quickly based on the feedback and input that you get. That's right. You know, I'm a big believer in that. Um, I worked with a startup recently uh, over the last couple months that, uh, you know, they came into my, the consulting company I work for with, a you know, they, they already raised some money based on their idea. You know, they, they got lucky. Um, they had an idea that was kind of in a buzzy space. And so they, they were able to convince some angels to, to plop down, uh, some cash, even with no revenue or nothing. And so they came to us to wanting help to build this product out and they were ready to spend, you know, like half a million bucks, just drop it on this thing they wanted us to build. And, 
you know, one of, I guess, as a product person, I looked at what they wanted and I was like, guys, you know, we could take your money and we can build this thing and you're going to take it to market and it's going to hundred percent fail and you're going to walk away and everyone's going to cry. Um, so how about this? How about we don't take your money? How about we take a very much smaller a micro part of your money and let's spend uh, four weeks and let's break this thing down and let's figure out how to make an MVP that's going to work. And then, it's, and then we'll spend a little bit more of your money and we'll build an MVP in 30 days. And then let's take that to market or at least take it to your early adopter users and see how they feel about it. And then if that works, then you can give us the rest of your money. And, uh, you know, I think they were kind of shocked by that attitude, but you know, it worked out perfectly. You know, the, here's these guys, we, we did, we did all those things. We were, I worked with them. We found that MVP. We got really excited about it. 30 days later, we had it, we had it ready. We had it built. We got it out. They tested it. It's going great. They got into an accelerator program with it. And, and now they've got it out there. And I just heard today that they've got their first, uh, like a hundred paying customers. Um, and it's going, it's going awesome for them. So, you know, that's to me, like that is the progression. If you're going to bootstrap, um, I almost think people would say, well, if you're bootstrapping, you can work on it forever. And, you know, I'm a big point of bootstrapping. We bootstrap Sonic, uh, most of the way. And, uh, but again, you know, you're wasting your time. If you, if you just, overbuild and overbuild and overbuild and you're not testing and you're not getting it in front of users, you're just wasting your time uh, and you're increasing exponentially sort of the risk and like the liability of this thing by investing so much into it without having that feedback. So you, you would be, you would agree with the concept of failing your failure as fast as possible. Oh, fail fast. Yeah, for sure. It's so, it's so key. I think a lot of times it's not, it won't be a failure, right? What will actually happen is you won't fail fast. You'll just fail to do the thing you thought you were going to do and you'll do something else that's yeah. adjacent to that thing. It's, it's sort of like a slow fail into something else that's better. Anyway. Yeah, you're learning, you're learning and pivoting quickly. Yeah. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time and this has been so valuable. I, some great takeaways that we'll be sharing uh, after the interview and really appreciate it. Uh, I know that you're obviously in the midst of transitioning into some different things, doing some consulting, but if someone wants to find you, is there an email, LinkedIn, what's the best place to, you know, get in touch with you and, or is there anything you're doing currently to help entrepreneurs? Uh, well, first I want to rewind and say that despite the sharks not investing in invalidated, we did end up raising money shortly after the show. And, uh, with, with the pivots that I talked about. So we took, yeah. we took the sharks advice. Uh, we retooled things a little bit and we actually did raise money and uh, the product uh, was successful and we sold the company uh, to a unit, unit of Daimler uh, in 2019. So if, if anyone wonders what, what happened to Validated, um, it became more of a B2B product than a B2C. So uh, other mobility companies ended up using our, our engine to create their own mobility rewards programs that were internal. So we had like uh, some bike share programs and um, uh, some insurance companies and a bunch of other business customers. I don't want to, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say who, cause they were all weight labels, but we had a bunch of customers that actually used validated to build their own mobility rewards platforms internal to their products. And that ended up being the, the secret way, right? We were able, rather than having struggling to adopt, to get so many <clears throat> restaurants on board and so many, uh, you know, consumers on board by going to the, by switching to a B2B model, you know, we were able to go after a smaller, a smaller number of higher value customers. And that was what it took. And so, you know, at that point we were, but we were able to find a, a solid exit. In your experience, do you think B2B is easier than B2C? Yes, I think it is. Um, I, and I, I hesitate that a little bit. It, it really depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, my, my first product was hugely successful and it was B2C but we were also riding the lightning, right? Like lightning struck. We saw this, there was this little sliver of opportunity. We were the one of the first out of the gate. And it was like, we took advantage of several different sort of trends that were happening within computing and internet and things at the time and rode that to success. Those moments are hard to find, you know, they're, they're tricky. And I don't, you know, I don't think that we, we knew we were on a rocket ship at some point, but it wasn't, it was sort of like an intuitive thing too. There was a certain amount of luck in being in the right place at the right time. And those are hard to do. It's, it's a totally different world now, right? Like consumer space, getting consumers attention, it's tough. 
So you got to find an entry point where you're going to, you know, where you're going to start with a, a, you know, you're going to service a need that's probably going to be pretty niche at first and then try to expand from there. But it's definitely, I, I think it's tougher. Whereas when you're going after business, right, you can usually identify like an inefficiency or some sort of growth throttle or some kind of lever that you can tap into. And a lot of the times I think successful B2B plays come from people that already work in that space. So like you already know, maybe you work at the, you know, the widget factory and it turns out that you know that the machine that makes the widgets could be 20 times more efficient, but the company doesn't do it because why? Because they don't, you know, because they because of momentum and inertia. And so you figure out a way to build the widget machine better and like, boom, you found your little niche. Um, I think a lot of great companies are started that way. And I think those are the, un a lot of times those are the unsung startups you don't hear about that are super successful behind the scenes because it's really just, they've incremented, you know, they, they made it a better mousetrap, but it's a mousetrap that only certain companies buy, but it turns out they're multi-billion dollar companies. And so those people get mega rich, build doing something that you'll never hear about. Um, and I think a lot of times those entrepreneurs tend to be a little older and wiser too, because they come from those industries. They have an established presence in those industries. I think it's, I think B2B is a great place to be, but I also think there's tons of opportunity in B2C. If you can, if you've got something that's genuinely new and different, and it's going to be able to inspire people's imagination. And uh, you have a go-to-market strategy kind of mapped out where you're going to be able to shine a light on it. Um, great. You know, you'll probably get, I mean, that's the difference. If you have successful B2B, takes a lot of years to grind it out because the sales cycles are slow. If you can find a B2C product that is going to take off like lightning, bam, you'll, you know, you'll probably get either fail or get really rich real quick. But it's, I do think it's harder. Yeah, there, there were a lot of ifs in your uh, B2C scenario. Yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> which I, I think made it. your point. Yeah, yeah, no, made your point. Like, I don't know that I could do it again. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I did, I have done several B2C companies. Uh, the second one that I worked on was pretty successful as well, but we cheated and that we had a celebrity involved. And like, if you can have somebody that has reach and audience and can, and can, leverage that that's an incredible way to bring something to market um but you know how many people have a celebrity in their back pocket like very well few. joe joe was an extra on a couple of episodes of king of queens there you go yeah so I mean, does that count might yeah I you could say, definitely if you're going after the king of queens diehards maybe that's your initial market niche i was man man in movie theater line so in episode 147 sweet <laughs> great I think I'm in Die Hard 3 with a vengeance. Uh, uncredited role, man wearing plaid shirt on the side of the street pointing at Bruce Willis. And I think I'm blurry and out of focus. <laughs> well, did you get your $67 in a, in a meal? <laughs> oh, no, I, I, didn't, I wasn't even official. I think I was just like walking around New York City and like stumbled onto the set and was like, oh, it's Bruce. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And again, I, I don't know if, if people can find you on LinkedIn or, you know, I, I just, I'd imagine that the, the right person may want to uh, engage with you and some advice if you're doing any consulting work. Yeah, I am. Uh, I am doing some consulting. I'm about to take a new role at another, at another startup, but I do, I, I love to consult and, uh, and, you know, I, I uh, mentor and advise a, a lot of different startups through um, some accelerators that I'm part of. So Maritime Maritime Blue in Seattle, I'll give them a shout out uh, if you're into Maritime stuff or um, Pi PDX, which is a Portland-based uh, startup accelerator. They're great programs. Techstars is wonderful, but um, great place to meet mentors. Uh, yeah, I'm always open to people reaching out on LinkedIn as long as I don't get too slammed and I'll reply and um yeah, happy to happy to help. I, I love uh, I actually have gotten a lot of value out of out of being a mentor recently. So it's it's been fun. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was great. So many takeaways and great conversation. And we so appreciate the time. Hey, I appreciate you guys reaching out. This has been fun. All right. You take care. Take care, guys. Bye. All right, we're back. Uh, really good interview. 
learned a lot of good stuff here. Uh, first thing I had in my notes was um, how tough user experience is. And again, creating a uh, app or an environment or even a retail store, right? But saying, okay, what is my customer going to do? What experience do, do I want to give them? How are they going to behave? What are they going to do to navigate things? Uh, it, it's easy to create something that you think is a good idea, but users don't understand it, don't use it properly. Um, uh, another thing on that point was just the importance of storytelling and being able to explain your story really well. Uh, another thing, and this was a quote uh, from Ian, was you only have so much runway. It's true. You know, you raise money and, you know, you think, oh, well, gosh, a million dollars, that's a lot of money. But it eventually runs out. And... Uh, it can run out quickly. It can take a while, but just understand that you know you only have so much time. And uh, I remember a number of years ago, someone asking me, you know, like early on, what was uh, a great tip that you have for an entrepreneur? Like what served you really well? And I said I was paranoid. I was paranoid I was going to run out of money. I was paranoid that nothing I did was going to work. So because of my paranoia, I moved really, really fast. You know, I was cautious about how I spent money, but I'm like, well, the quicker. I move, the quicker I'll either be right or wrong. And if I'm wrong, I make those mistakes quick and I move on. And if I'm right, then I'm right. But move really, really quick because you only have so much runway. Last thing I had here was <laughs> the first iteration of our ideas. What percentage of the time are we successful? I, I wrote down 0% and it's not 0%, but it's pretty darn close. And you say, oh, well, you know, every company nails it right away. All these big companies that are successful, they had these great ideas. And then you actually look at the product and you're like, oh, well, the first iteration was actually a lot different. Uh, Uber didn't start out like Uber. Uber started out by buying really expensive black cars in San Francisco and owning their inventory and trying to move people around. Well, what Uber Uber is now is radically different, okay? And it's the same with Amazon and it's the same with like every other company. Talk to, you know, friends that are entrepreneurs and just go, hey, this company that you have now that's successful and doing great, is this how you started out? Oh, gosh, no, I started out with something that looked completely different or marginally different and I changed it. So don't get married to your first iteration. Don't have such a big head and so much ego that you think you're right the first time because you're not. I've never been right and any idea I've had, even recently, like some things that I've created pretty recently, the first idea with that wasn't even close to where we ended up, but you move really, really quickly, you shift, you pivot, you learn, um, you're okay. But if you come into a situation saying, I've got it all figured out and this is the market we're going after and this is the product we're gonna have and we're gonna be successful, no, you're not. Come in saying, hey, this is kind of the direction we're going and we think this is it, but we're going to learn and pivot pretty quickly. Like if an entrepreneur came in to pitch me and wanted to, hey, I, I want 50 grand of angel money uh, to really take my idea and this is what I'm going to do. And they were so certain that they were right. I, to me, that would be a turnoff because they're probably not right. They're probably close. They're probably in the arena. Their market might be right. Like the technology might be close, but you can't have such an ego that you think that you're right right out of the bat because there's things you're going to learn. And it could be, hey, we thought we were B2C, but we're really B2B. Or we thought that we were going to package uh, and, and direct ship, but we're not. I mean, you know, it's just you're, you're going to have differences. And so I just thought that was so important that, you know, you're probably close, but you're probably not there. So that first iteration, don't fall in love with it. So uh, really enjoy my conversation with Ian. Hope you did as well. We'll see you next week on an all new episode of Outside the Tank.